During the Great Depression, a period from about 1929 until the late 1930s, when a confluence of variables ranging from stock market crashes to agricultural depletion to a deflationary spiral led to the most devastating and long-lasting global economic collapse of modern history, it became common for stores of various sorts to offer what became known as layaway purchasing plans to their customers. Fundamentally, this meant allowing customers to pay some portion of the cost of an item up front, then allowing them to pay for the rest of that item over time, usually in pre-agreed-upon installments, but not always, though there was almost always a deadline, at which point the item in question would be put back on the shelves. The benefit for customers was that they could slowly pay for more expensive items over the course of weeks or months without risking that item being sold to someone else. Remember, this was during the Great Depression, but also the 1930s, so higher-end items weren't necessarily consistently available because of production issues and because manufacturing and globalization and shipping just were not what they are today. If an appliance or car that you wanted became available locally, if you didn't snap it up, you might not have the option of buying that item again for a very long time. So this type of plan allowed someone who only had 10% of the total cost of the appliance or car to pay that 10% and then have the object they wanted and could eventually pay for set aside, laid away, usually in a warehouse or similar storage area by the store owner. Once they paid the total sticker price, they would be able to take that product home. If they failed to do so, the store owner could just put it back on the shelf, which means they would have essentially been paid to store that object for that period. The benefit for the seller under this setup was that more people would be willing to buy higher-end objects when the upfront cost that they paid in the moment was a small fraction of the total larger cost they would eventually pay. So they would eventually get that whole amount, even if the money came in over time, rather than all at once. And for the relatively small cost of storing the laid-away items until the customer fully paid them off, they could use those funds that they were paid incrementally to buy more stock for the store, or even just put that money in an interest-generating account, like a bank or bonds or something like that. This arrangement largely disappeared in the 1980s, when credit cards went mainstream, and folks were able to get most of the benefits of layaway programs, but with the added bonus of being able to have the item they're paying for over time right away. This was a different arrangement because of that forward loading of the enjoyment of the new acquisition, but also because of how it worked out financially. The store owner didn't have to pay for storage space because the item went right out the door when it was purchased. So credit cards allowed this pay-over-time model to look just like a normal purchase from the seller's perspective. But for the credit card-issuing entities, this type of arrangement was a gold mine. Some people would pay off their debts on time, but others would not. 
and the interest charged on those debts climbed steadily and fairly dramatically to the point where regulatory bodies around the world eventually had to step in, though some such regulators and some analysts in this space still think that even the relatively moderate interest rates on today's credit cards are at times borderline abusive and responsible for putting many people into debt spirals that they have little chance of ever escaping. That, of course, varies from country to country, however. Notably, some companies have continued to use that original layaway model more or less continuously since the mid-20th century. The U.S. big-box department store Kmart, for instance, has been offering it for a small fee for decades, and it's still somewhat common in a few industries, like jewelers and vacation companies. More common today, though, is the credit card model or a similar model often called rent-to-own in the United States, and higher purchases or installment plans in other parts of the world. This model is similar to a leasing model, but offers the person doing the leasing the option of buying the thing that they are leasing at some predefined point in the future, or in some cases, whenever they please. And similar to the credit card model, this allows the person doing the leasing to possess and use and benefit from the item in question while they are paying for it or paying it off if they decide to make that purchase. And the total price that they ultimately pay if they do choose to eventually buy that item typically goes down as they make more rental-style payments, which is where the rent-to-own moniker comes from. Again, this is favorable to the seller because it means they can typically sell more stuff to more people who might not otherwise be inclined or be able to make such a large upfront purchase. For buyers, this can be beneficial because it provides many of the benefits of a credit card style purchase, but also allows the flexibility of renting in case their financial situation changes or they ultimately decide after a period of usage that they would prefer to just eat the cost of that rental period and not pay the full amount for the thing that they would now prefer to return. What I'd like to talk about today is another model that leans heavily on these earlier payment options and which is becoming increasingly popular very quickly, a model typically called Buy now, pay later. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Some entities, like Walmart, reintroduced layaway payment options in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis a moment in which, like during the Great Depression, more people were cash-strapped and less overall financially secure, and thus might benefit from having more ways to buy big things, which is, after all, what these sorts of entities are hoping to encourage people to do. Another benefit of this type of system, especially for folks caught up in the massive financial ripples caused by that collapse, was that it was less tied to credit scores, and a lot of people's credit ratings were demolished during this period because of failed mortgage payments or similar issues that then left them excluded from or punished by the cabal of credit issuing and credit tracking entities. In essence, a lot of people 
were suddenly unable to access credit, or if they could, it would cost them a small fortune because of the risk credit card issuing companies now considered them to be. That's important context for the article I'd like to start with today, which comes from Reuters and is entitled, As Buy Now, Pay Later Surges, A Third of U.S. Users Fall Behind on Payments. This piece lays out some recent data on the burgeoning buy now, pay later service industry in the United States, which has recently earned a flurry of headlines due to a rapid, borderline, frantic period of acquisition and deals that has involved some very big names in the tech and the broader retail space. Payment processing company Square kicked off this spree with its purchase of Afterpay, and then PayPal, also a payment processing company, replicated that move by acquiring a Japanese firm called Payday. In recent weeks, Amazon announced that they would be partnering with a firm, a company that offers buy now, pay later services. And Apple announced that folks using their Apple Pay offering would be able to make buy now, pay later purchases. Those purchases backed by Goldman Sachs. Even the banking company Capital One is getting in on the action. They've announced that they'll be testing a buy now, pay later product that they built internally later in 2021. The market valuation of similar companies like Klarna and Sizzle and Perpay and Splitit have trended upward, in some cases quite dramatically, in the wake of all this attention for a segment of the larger payment services industry that until recently hasn't been stagnant, but definitely hasn't been on this kind of upward trajectory either. Part of this growth is almost certainly a desire by such companies to not seem like they're falling behind, and not wanting to be left out of what might turn out to be an important, or ostensibly important, to shareholders and potential shareholders, trend. But part of it is due to the trend lines these companies are seeing, and what those trend lines, and what seems to be driving them, portend for where the world of buying things seems to be going. A collection of recently published data on this topic indicates that the use of buy now, pay later payment options among young people ages 21 to 25 has grown incredibly rapidly. In 2019, only 6% of people in this age range had used such a service, and that was up to 36% in 2021. The numbers were similar for other age groups, though not quite as dramatic. Use amongst folks ages 26 to 40 increased from 17% to 14% from 2019 to 2021. The 41 to 55 age range increased from 9% to 30% over that period. And baby boomers, who are 56 to 75 years old, increased their use of such services from 1% in 2019 to 18% in 2021. This increase pulled the value of purchases made via Buy Now, Pay Later services in the United States up from $20.3 billion in 2019 to an estimated $99.4 billion in 2021, which is a pretty staggering jump. A lot of that bump may be the consequence of the global pandemic. 
And part of why this is suspected by some analysts is that although this industry jumped from $20.3 billion to $99.4 billion between 2019 and 2021, it only crept up from 20.3 to 23.9 from 2019 to 2020. So the vast majority of that growth happened in 2021. Which may be just happenstance, but it's a fair bet that at least some of this growth is related to the many global changes that have occurred in the past year and a half, including the measurable shift toward buying things online rather than in person across all demographics. There's evidence, though, that other variables might play a role here as well, perhaps especially in that youngest tracked age demographic. This evidence indicates that there might be a sort of keeping up with the Joneses trend happening, where young people are reaching the age at which they can legally get access to credit, and are looking out into the world and seeing things that they want, the same as any other demographic, but because young people today have seen what happens to folks who fall deep into debt, this is a generation that was growing up during the worst parts of that recent global financial collapse, remember. They're perhaps looking for more financially responsible options when it comes to acquiring those things that they'd like to have. Now, probably worth noting here is that personal finance experts are warning consumers that buy now, pay later is still debt and still operates like a credit card in most measurable ways. Yes, a lot of these options are interest-free, or interest-free in some cases, which is pretty cool. Many of these companies make most of their money through fees paid by the stores and platforms they work with. So Amazon pays a firm a fee for offering and handling buy-now-pay-later sales made through the Amazon storefront. But most of these services also charge interest on late payments. And although credit scores are less relevant in this space than they are when acquiring a credit card or trying to get a mortgage, not paying fees associated with buy now, pay later schemes can still lead to long-term credit-related consequences, not to mention higher prices and debt because of that late payment interest. A recent study conducted by Qualtrics found that 44% of adults in the United States have used buy now, pay later services at some point, and almost a third of that group said they missed a payment on their purchases. And the data indicate that those most likely to miss a payment were young people. Part of the reason these sorts of services are being more widely used including by young people who seem keen to avoid the debt-related sins of their older peers and their parents' generations, is that they're being marketed as a better, less pitfall-laden alternative to credit cards and debit cards. Basically, they're not as directly connected to banks, in most cases, and thus have a veneer of higher credibility and safety than other available options, even though they amount to the same thing as those other options, but with somewhat different specifics. There's likely a psychological component to this as well. If you buy something for $300, but you only have to pay $50 today, that expense is tabulated differently by our brains than if we made a $300 purchase that depleted our bank account by that full amount all at once up front. 
even very responsible, financially savvy people fall prey to this brain-tricking heuristic. And it's been cited by a large number of people who have accumulated too many payments and thus fallen behind and suffered the consequences for doing so. But also by regulators in places like Sweden, where laws related to buy-now-pay-later services are attempting to make them more transparent and to essentially warn people that although they seem like a different thing, they're basically the same animal with different spots. There are risks associated with them, and debt is debt. Even if it is generally better, if you're going to take on debt, to do so using a platform that doesn't charge interest if you pay on time. The UK recently published a report in which they said this industry, quote, poses potential harms to consumers and needs to be brought within regulation, end quote and the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has published a guide on its website in which it explains some of the small print that people typically ignore or don't see when it comes to this industry, saying that, yes, there are some advantages, but also, please, please, please be careful because it's super easy to take on more debt than your future self can afford, even if it's not necessarily clear that that's what's happening when you're doing it. So there's a sort of branding element to why this has become so popular so fast. It has become a cleaner, less threatening-seeming alternative to other credit and debt-related options. A sort of newfangled, layaway program that's intertwined with modern technology in a way that makes it super accessible and especially easy to use, and especially easy to use for online purchases. And some of that vibe is absolutely true. But some of it is more like greenwashing, more marketing, than actual benefit. But despite that, the impact of this perception, however true it happens to be, seems to be fairly fundamental to this growth in the casual use of this type of payment method. There's also an element of the economic and social environment in which we find ourselves today, which is seeing a whole lot of our shopping move online, especially for the types of larger ticket items that tend to be what folks buy using these services to break those larger price tags into pieces that they can then pay over time. There's one more element to this story that is a bit less reported upon at the moment, but which seems like it might be important to the underlying rationale for all these big companies wanting to get into this space, and other companies wanting to work with them, which in turn might be part of why they're spending so much to advertise these buy-now-pay-later services, which then in turn creates the aforementioned this-is-a-better-option perception. Typical credit card payments have a lot of middlemen involved. There are banks, there are payment networks, and then there's the merchant and the customer. Buy now, pay later systems can enable transactions along a separate route that has fewer middlemen. And this can be beneficial across several dimensions, the two biggies being that traditional credit card processing is expensive, cutting off several percentage points of profit that the seller would otherwise make off each sale. But fewer middlemen also typically gives sellers more data and selling options than they would otherwise have, because a lot of that information and those options are cookie-cuttered away by all those intermediary systems and steps. Which, said another way, means that at the moment at least, and this doesn't apply universally and it may not apply forever, as this new payment system develops and grows and becomes more complex, 
But at the moment, in some cases, sellers using this payment model have more visibility over who's buying what and how and can sell things to people in more ways than were previously available. So they have more flexibility and options in that regard, and they might even save some money depending on which services they're using and what sort of deals they can make with these new intermediary payment service companies. Through that lens, it's perhaps a bit more clear why larger companies in particular might want to acquire or build these sorts of services. It creates a different payment system from the one that everyone's been more or less forced to use for decades, while also giving them more control over how they sell things and their understanding of their customer base. This may be a temporal moment during which this is true, as competition could lead to more middlemen on this new system. The industry could consolidate to the point where the distinction is watered down to the point of irrelevance, and it could be that folks just become so jaded about this type of payment model, or the global economic system changes in some way from where it is today so that it's just no longer used as frequently as it is at this particular moment. In any case, this trend might end organically as a result of one of many or multiple of many possible variables. In the meantime, though, it looks like this will continue to be a hot space for at least a little while in terms of the existing players being bought and melding together into larger players, but also in terms of existing financial and consumer-facing entities introducing their own versions of this type of service, probably with varying specifics and upsides and downsides, all of which could also erode the trust that a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, currently place in this purchasing option. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer by Stephen Johnson. I have read several books recently on the extension of life and some of the things that we're working on currently to hopefully increase both lifespan and health span, the amount of our living years, the amount of time that we have, that we're healthy enough to enjoy those years. And it's very interesting stuff. A lot of it is very speculative, but I'm fairly optimistic about the future that we'll figure things out and continue to move forward in that regard. That said, just as if not more important to understanding that line of work and to understand where we might be going, I think, is to understand where we came from. And this book covers that, the history of how we got to where we are today with the lifespans that we have and the sprawling collection of discoveries and systems and lifestyle changes and societal structures that allowed us to have the lives that we have today. It's an interesting topic and not something that's talked about quite as much as the near future life extension stuff. But I think it's helpful to remember just how humble some of the innovations we are benefiting from today have been, but also just how innovative and cool and whiz-bang some of them have been over the years. It's the sort of thing that makes you happy, despite all of our myriad and diverse problems, to be alive today compared to even half a century ago. 
Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Extra Life by Stephen Johnson. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. And you can find the brand new site for my collection of projects, including this one, at understandery.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.